This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Mariana Kaplan. Mariana is a psychotherapist, a cultural anthropologist, and a professor of yogic and transpersonal psychologies at the California Institute of Integral Studies. She's also the author of a new Sounds True book, Eyes Wide Open, Cultivating Discernment on the Spiritual Path. I spoke with Mariana about some of the thorniest, big questions of spiritual life, questions about enlightenment, and is enlightenment even a useful term, questions about the teacher-student relationship, and about what makes someone, quote-unquote, spiritually mature. Here's Mariana Kaplan on cultivating discernment on the spiritual path. Welcome, Mariana. Hi, Tammy. You're the author of a new Sounds True book that I'm so pleased that Sounds True has been able to publish, Eyes Wide Open, Cultivating Discernment on the Spiritual Path. And what I'm curious about to begin with is in the writing of this book, what you discovered that you didn't know before you wrote the book. I think the best response I can give to that is when when we enter into this whole field of spirituality that you and I have both been doing most of our adult lives it's it's obvious that it's complex and that there's minefields and and that there's a big underbelly but i think because the task of this book was to really go in there and take apart and articulate i think more than anything i i came to appreciate the endless and subtle degrees of complexity that we're dealing with with all of these subjects and how most things that it's easy to have a conviction on or see it a certain way, if you keep going with it, it's also very plausible to see it in another way. And, and depending on where somebody's at and at what stage in their life they're at and, and like an endless, kind of an endless labyrinth of complexity mm-hmm. that I don't think really stops. So I know that a lot of people in spiritual, talk about spiritual things, say it's all simple, and I think it's pretty complex, mm-hmm. really. I'm sure there's some level at which it's simple, but but I think for most of us, a lot of the time, it, 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 um, it's advantageous to appreciate the complexity of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you use this term, cultivating discernment on the spiritual path. And I'm curious both what you mean by discernment and how that might relate to what you're talking about now in terms of complexities or nuances. Mm-hmm. So I was, although I've been writing about discernment, I think, but I really got turned on to the term from, from one of the Tanjali's Yoga Sutras because I'm very involved in yoga studies and practice. And there's a particular sutra that that talks about the need to cultivate discernment and the discernment is such a powerful tool and shield that that it has the capacity when cultivated to to 
pierce through untruths at, at every every level of our experience, from very gross to very subtle. So what I would mean by discernment is really like this piercing capacity to 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 navigate subtle distinctions with with clarity and not intellectually. I mean, first intellectually, but but practically. Did I answer your question? Well, I was curious, you used this word shield. How, how is discernment? A shield from what? I think it's protection. I think that when we learn to look at this labyrinth of our psyche and the labyrinth of spiritual path and of trajectory with increasing degrees of clarity, and some of learning to do that is going to come through our experience, some is going to come through our study, some is going to come through availing ourselves to real feedback from others, that, that this becomes our protection because when we cultivate that capacity and, and refine it, then we can bring that to bear in whatever situation that we're in. But I don't think it's something that's cultivated in a certain period of time and then you're done cultivating it and then you're set. I think it's, it's just a, a process of increasing refinement without end, really. And do you think some of that refinement is what you described in the beginning of our conversation about being able to see things from many different perspectives? To see things from many different perspectives and, and then more importantly, the degree to which we're able to see ourselves with, with real self-honesty. So I think that part of the discernment is, is being able to, to know what we're dealing with externally, but that the greater capacities come when we're really willing to be revealed to ourselves and be raw and, and the kind of capacity for seeing that often comes through being broken down and broken open and from the, the harder lessons and not just the shining dharmic diamonds showering on us. But what happens after the diamond shower and, and we've gone home and you know, screwed up in relationship to our partner one more time or you know been rude in a way that we know that, that is, is um, totally dissonant with what we believe in, that that's a lot of what forges discernment if we're really willing to meet that and, and, and look at ourselves clearly. Well, I think that's a, an interesting thing that you're pointing to, and I think most people listening can probably can relate to the idea of this diamond dharma moments, as you use that phrase, and then coming home and getting in a fight with their partner. But how does that lead to discernment? Like, I get that. I get that I was at the retreat. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it, it doesn't automatically lead to discernment, but, but it leads to discernment when when we're willing to... To, to look more honestly at ourselves and allow ourselves to, to experience ourselves where, where we're at. We've been exposed to the great teachings. We love them. We connect. That's really true of us. And then many other things are also true of us. And, and I think we often want to overestimate. It's more of a tendency to overestimate. Or I guess we could flip into self-hatred as, as a... On, on the contrary, but but in between is 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 just a really meeting meeting life raw and as we are with our, our greatest ideals and 
and capacities and and our our weakest links and and engaging engaging our process from there and I know you've spent at least a couple of decades meeting you know, the great teachers and and I have in my own way mm-hmm. and continually the ones that touch me are 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 not necessarily the ones pouring out those diamonds, but the ones that are so real. You know, when you're when you're in some crowd with a great Buddhist Lama, and he'll start his talk by saying, "God, you know, I really want everyone here to like me," mm-hmm. and everyone, <gasps> or or things like that. And and more and more, I find, you know, those are the those are the sweet moments where there's teachers who are really willing, who are great teachers, and and also willing to address. Dress themselves and us as we are. I was uh, I was in Bodhgaya in January, taking I bring students from the university each year, and and we the Karmapa was there, so we were listening to him speak for several days, and and he said something. There was five thousand monks. It was this huge gathering. They were from all over India and Southeast Asia, and he said the hardest thing that you're going to encounter on your journey as monks and nuns. You, know, you wait for some big thing, and he said, "Is the challenge of dealing with your own emotional lives." And I was so touched by that. That seems so real to me. Mm-hmm. That definitely uh, hits home here when you say that. Hmm. That 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 we're trying to make distinctions and navigate through the quote-unquote spiritual life. That's here, here in our real lives. That's what I'm interested in because I think that's that's where the integration takes place and that's where the exemplars arise from and the people who move and serve the world, at least in the way that, that I'm interested in, in seeing it moved and served. When you say that's where the integration takes place, what are we integrating? I think we're 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 integrating that part of us that's that that's touched by that great spark. I mean, anyone who's reading the book from Sounds True or listening to something like this, we've all been touched. And and then there's there's our entire psyche and psychological reality. There's our cultural reality. There's our karmic lineages. There's a lot of stuff. And most of it's contained in our bodies, and it's contained in our psyches. And it's it's like we're 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 taking that light of awareness and bringing it to bear on on all the nooks and crannies. And and I'm particularly interested in bringing it to to bear on the, the cellular structure of our body, and little by little penetrating penetrating all levels of of our experience with with that awareness. But little by little, because I think that's the way that it's going. That's the way that it happens. And maybe that's just a result of, of growing up on the spiritual path and and watching my my ideals when I was when I was younger and and watching different teachers and communities and myself over over many years and and being humbled by the process. And it's so easy, right, in the spiritual path for people to try to be humble or act humble or talk humble. But then when the process and the path knock you down, or life 
knocks you down in that way, then then a, a softer relationship seems to emerge to all of this. Do you think? I do, but not to be too contrarian here, but to bring up a, a different perspective. Sure. Uh, you know, little by little, little by little. Well, th- that that certainly has been my experience, and I think probably the experience of most people I've met. But then you have an example of someone like Eckhart Tolle or other people where there's a sudden, huge, sudden shift in their cellular structure, or so it seems. H- how do you make sense of something like that? I think in one of my other books, I, I called it like the Ramana Maharshi argument. Um, and it's, it's, it's just that, that um, like I think it happens. And and let us each hold a, a place in ourselves that, that that could be true of us because we don't want to miss that window if it's suddenly opened by believing that we could only do it little by little. So I, I appreciate that. And then encountering, you know, enough thousands of spiritual practitioners and serious ones and diligent ones and noting that it happens to a few, right? One in every tens of thousands and like may that may that shift and may it be each of us and meanwhile i and and we can practice with diligence regardless but i i i think there's a there's a a way or maybe part of a process that happens for people in spiritual path that when you come and you're young and ambitious there's a part of us that really thinks that we're extra special and we're more special than all the other people that we're practicing with and we have this extra connection to the divine, and 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 maybe there's it's that specialness, and it's linked often with a, either a naivety or a narcissism, and and maybe there's a point in the path where where we say like, oh, I'm I'm like everybody else, and sure, I'm special, and they're special, and 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 that's okay. And I hope that anybody listening to this right, becomes that exception. And. And then many of us won't, and we can still live like radiant, exemplary lives of practice and transformation. I used to think that wasn't enough, and now I do. Mm-hmm. You mean you used to think that you potentially were one of those rare, sure. special people? And yeah. I'm willing to bet that most hardcore practitioners, at least if they started young enough, you know, if there's some way that that inside it's like, oh, you know, I'm gonna. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rise. I didn't expect to be Ramana Maharshi, but you know that I'm gonna do something that the others can't do because my, my longing is greater, my passion is deeper, my diligence and commitment to practice is more intense. I hadn't met the thousands of people that I met later to know that it was quite similar. Mm-hmm. We all love the divine, you know. We've all perceived the spark of truth and. And and here we are, as companions on the path, many years later, and, and I find myself in great company, and I don't need people to be extra enlightened in order to, to feel that they're, they're diligently proceeding along the path. And with discernment and with increasing discernment, we become more, more effective and more refined and more capable in our service or in our work, whatever that is. Well, one of the things I love about you, Mariana, is that you don't shy away from any of the big, thorny questions in spirituality. 
you know, like, like this question we're just talking about, or the next few that I'm going to bring up, that you're willing to just go, no, you're willing to go right into it. So, you know, you mentioned this term enlightenment, and it's a term that I think uh, needs discernment brought to it. I mean, what the heck are we even talking about? What are we talking about? What is this word? What could this word mean? What does it mean to you? Um, so, like we said early in the conversation, when I when I'm inclined to make a really strong argument in one way, I'm, I'm very often aware that there's a counter-argument that's equally valid. And I say that before I, I respond to this question, because largely I'm, I'm inclined to say that, that enlightenment is almost a, a defunct word. It doesn't seem to mean very much anymore, and it seems to, to get in the way quite a bit. Um, I think it's overused. I think that when people talk about enlightenment in spiritual circles and everyone kind of nods their head a little bit like we're all talking about the same thing um, that we know what we're talking about and I, I can't hear that word without without having the question you just asked like, well, what, what exactly is that? and, and then in, in the Yoga Sutras, for example they, they list like many, many, many levels of enlightenment. So what's often referred to as enlightenment and then somebody becomes an enlightened teacher and, and so forth is like a very baby level of enlightenment. And then there's these degrees of enlightenment and not degrees that are traversed in months, but, you know, kind of mega levels of, of expansion that, that really go without end. And so that's on one side. And... and but then I'll, when I hang out with, with my Buddhist friends or listen to a, you know, a really good Buddhist teacher talk about enlightenment, I find myself appreciating, appreciating that. Because if, if we diss the idea of enlightenment too easily, we run the risk of, of convincing ourselves that some, something great spiritually is not possible for us. So I think it there is a way, and I'm, I'm really only coming back to this in the last several months where I'm kind of open to enlightenment again, <laughs> maybe not for myself, but um, where, where there's, there's a, a possibility, there's a possibility of a profound, profound awakening. But even so, there's a lot of people and a lot of, a lot of popular teachers who have had profound spiritual awakenings. And those awakenings still haven't come to bear in all the different structures of their lives. And that's okay. The, the knowledge can still be useful, but, but the process that I'm after or that I talk about a lot in this book of integration is, is still taking that awareness and, and letting it come to bear on, on, on our body, on our breath, you know, on our child raising and our relationships and, and everything we do. And I think that that's the, the kind of awakening or integration that, that's more needed right now. Many years ago, when I interviewed Claudio Naranjo for the first time, and he had had a, you know, a large enlightenment when he became a guru back in the late 60s or early 70s, and, and then after three years, the enlightenment went away, and he entered into this 10 or 15-year dark night of the soul that he speaks about very elegantly what he said at that time and I was like a spiritual kid interviewing him and I was so impressed he said he said that in retrospect he 
he, he saw that the light of his enlightenment had to be sacrificed in order to illuminate what was still dark within him. And knowing Claudio now, many years later, he's, he's a refined man who's done so much good in the world. So I find that more attractive than, than, uh, than a lot of what we see in the spiritual scene in the name of enlightenment. I aspire to something like that more. So just to dig into this a little bit more. Sure. I certainly understand what you mean about all the sort of confused claims to enlightenment and, you know, people feeling like, you know, I'm there, I've arrived, but it's obvious to everybody else that they've got a long way to go in certain parts of their life. Mm-hmm. I get that. What I'm curious about is when you say in the in the past few months that there's an opening in you to what this might mean in a genuine way that's not that, not claiming something that where there's still a lot of mm-hmm. transformation in the person's being in other parts of their life that hasn't happened, but what it could be on the other side of the equation. Can you talk more about that? What could enlightenment be that would be meaningful? Maybe it could be a profound integration. One of the definitions of samadhi is integration. That that I can that I can connect to. But but not just like a psychological integration, but maybe I mean I think Jung was was great in how he described individuation. It could possibly be a human being that 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 has has um, a consistent access to to a, a an objective awareness of reality and and that, that that awareness really has come to bear on the different structures of, of their lives with a kind of consistency that um, that makes that person genuinely useful and effective in a way that that is uncommon that's just my best guess in the moment well okay and just to keep going a little bit because okay. you've you've interviewed a lot of different spiritual teachers and spent time with them mm-hmm. and people often ask this question to me and i don't know how to answer it which is why i'm going to ask it to you okay they say you know tammy so who have you met that's enlightened Mm-hmm. And I think, God, why are you asking me this question? You know, come on. I'm, I'm trying to do a good job. I'm trying to ask good questions. I don't know. You know, that's too much for me. But I'm curious, how would you answer it, given what you've just said, that continuity of being able to be integrated? I guess what you would be implying would be at all times, question mark? Have you met anybody like that? What, what, I missed what you just said. What I'm implying is what? That, that they would be an integrated with this bright light of awareness at all times. Are there people like that that you've met and spent time with? Well, this is what's so interesting, and this is why I I, I have met definitely one person. But this is after, between the teachers and scholars and people that people imagine to be enlightened, you know, maybe a couple hundred over the years, and seeking out the best of them. I've definitely met one, and then there's like a small handful. Was it someone that you spent enough time with that yeah, you really kicked yeah, the tire? Yeah, um, his name was Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, and he was a, a saint in South India. He died nine years ago, and I, I was with him daily for about nine months. And he was like one of the saints of old in, in the category of 
Mayor Baba, Neem Karoli Baba, and those those types of people. And uh, I I experienced something then, and I was only 25, but but it, it had a um, it was something like when I read the Yoga Sutras and and I hear these really high levels of enlightenment described that I think generally are very theoretical to read about. I have I have a reference point for what I'm reading. And it shifted the whole bar. Right? I'm really glad I met him and, and hung out with him for a long time when I was really young. Because it, it raised the bar like up you know, it raised the bar like headed toward it raised the bar to a place I never even knew that bars could go to. And it was a privilege, and it, it put other things in perspective. But I, I met some some great people over the years. I think most of them have died. Like, I met Vimala Takar before she died. I met her many years ago. She was U.G. Krishnamurti's informal successor. And I don't know if she was enlightened or not, but, like, a highly integrated human being, refined, and I met Yuji Krishnamurti a couple of times. Um, I'm sorry, Vimala was Jay Krishnamurti's uh, successor. But not so many, but I've met a lot of wise people. And I don't need them to be enlightened anymore. Do you? No. Tell me, though, what was so special about Yogi Ram Kumar. Okay. I met him when he was in his 70s. And his so-called enlightenment would have happened in his 30s. So I met him about 40 years into it. And you know how I like things to be so practical. And when I find myself describing this, it sounds so cosmic. So I'm aware of that as I describe this. But, but it was like the man who would have had the shift 40 years, 40 years before I met him, in which... Uh, he was very theistic. It was all in God consciousness terms, but that his his awareness would have um, begun to merge with with God consciousness. Like the man was still there as a shell, but the the most radiant awareness that that any of us may have ever conceived of was like pouring through this man. He was almost transparent, like you could almost stick your hand through him. And um, and one could sense that over those decades, with with that increasing radiance, that there was more capacity, and and you could sense that he had just kept going and going and going and going, that he'd never stopped. So it was like a, a man, the shell of a man who had been like blasted into the into the sun, and he was just burning and so loving i mean so capable and he didn't like miracles but he did them he didn't like show he didn't like the showiness of miracles like sai baba or somebody like that but he did them on the side and like, like what kinds of miracles um i like the cosmic part of you mariana as well as the <laughs> rational i like both often. i like both <laughs> and i fell at his knees in divine ecstasy um so I, I I watched him do physical healings a number of times, whether it was on bones or in cancer and things like that. Um, 
and and there was a particular day that I came in and he was he was involved oh it's so hard to describe but he was involved in in working out something with some invisible beings in the room and I tell you Tammy I could have a thousand people do that in front of me and I would be completely disinterested and skeptical mm -hmm. but this guy didn't leave me any room for doubt he didn't leave my being any room for doubt mm -hmm. and uh, just I, I watched him him work with 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 subtle beings and subtle forces, and I, 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 we sat for about an hour wondering what was happening until it, it shifted palpably in the room and something resolved itself. Um, and those are, there's a lot of miracle stories, but, but I have to say, like, quite honestly, they were, building, they were building a temple at that time. He resisted the temple being built until right before he died, and he made sure he died before the temple was done. And in an Indian summer, it's usually about 120 degrees in South India. And there would be these big darshan meetings where two hours twice a day would come and he would bless the people. And while the temple was being built every day, he would just go out with the workers up on the, up on the roofs or wherever they were working and spend the entire time of, of the darshan just blessing the workers and being with them. And he was like this bleeding heart, like watching a a heart without skin just bleeding with compassion and I used to stay up late at night and walk by the house where he stayed and there was just always chanting going on it was so beautiful but that's the only real saint I ever met and I looked and searched and I don't do that anymore but I used to travel far and wide for them and it just put things in perspective you know I live here in the Bay Area and 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 Every night of the week, I could go see some Satguru or some, the printing press here, the copy shop is called Avatar. I mean, there's enlightened people around all the time, and I'd usually rather go to the movies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's terrible, but it's true. Or hang out with really good company. Pumble, mm -hmm. like sincere company, people who are practicing and doing their lives. And Is this what happens when you get older? Well, I think one of the points that you make in Eyes Wide Open, and you make it really strongly, and I think it's a really important point, is the problem, the danger, the destruction that comes when people think they've arrived someplace, but they haven't arrived actually to a final sort of enlightened resting place. And, and I'm curious for you to talk a little bit about why that's such an important point, do you think? Well, because it limits us. I think our, you know, our capacity of what the path is is largely defined through the mind. Right? We're, we're identified with this egoic being pretty much most of the time all of us think that we are, that we think we are. And that's all right that we do. And then we've had these insights and we gain these teachings. But, but I think a lot of what we conceive of to be the path is is within within the construct of our concepts. So with, within that, there's a lot of expansion possible, and we may expand into a into a certain level or a certain kind of insight. And then we read the books, and it seems to match up what we read in terms of our experience. Or some teacher validates that that's an enlightenment. And 
it just seems so limiting. It seems very limiting, and 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 if the if the individuals who are needing to experience themselves enlightened are also needing to become teachers and proliferate that enlightenment, then they they spread that limitation. Mm-hmm. And and it it seems from everything I've learned because although my views are sometimes um, well, they're not cynical, but although they're very very pragmatic, like I'm I'm desperately passionate about practice and expansion and the path and endless growth. And I think it's just that it's it's like there doesn't need to be an end and and wherever that end is it's definitely not where our concepts of that end is going to be meeting that man Yogi Ram Sritkumar that we were just talking about it, it it convinced me that there's no end there's no end to our growth there's no end to integration there's no end to enlightenment so so the the, the idea of having arrived seems kind of childish and limiting. When I interviewed Joan Halifax many years ago, I was writing the book on premature claims to enlightenment, and I was all on this rampage about people premature, prematurely claiming enlightenment, and, and this is on, on behalf of the perspective there, that there's always another viewpoint. She said, oh, she said, I think it's kind of cute. She said, I work. She said, I teach Buddhism in prisons, you know, and those guys have real problems, and and she said, you know, when somebody pretends to be enlightened, it's it's just like when we used to play dress up in our in our mother's clothes. Mm-hmm. It's like it's just like playing dress up, and it's kind of sweet. It's just a stage; it'll pass. And uh, I remember just appreciating that. I like when my views get knocked down. Maybe not right in the moment, but definitely in the next moment. How did Yogi Ram Saratkumar show you the endless nature of the path? I mean, here's somebody, if anybody would have arrived, at least from your estimation, it would have been him, but yet you're saying he showed you some endless aspect. I, I saw him, you know, many days I saw him most of the day, and and often into the night. He was always practicing and serving. and You could feel in him, like he was so actively involved in this longing and love affair and surrender and and pouring out of love from that place he wasn't stopping i mean we could argue that he was at a certain place and he just kept giving from that place but but it had this 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 quality of endless moods and endless surprises and day in, day out, I mean, without cease, in the way that Amaji gives hugs, you know, without cease, he just kept going. Um, so, so we're really talking about transmission, right? That that's how we really perceive something, and that's the advantage of of living of living teacher. I think one of the the great, the most paramount advantages of a living teacher is that is that through the way that truth is alive in them. They, they convey that that experience into another person. You know, it's literally passing on the fire of 
the light of awareness from one person to another. So really, he did it in that way. That's, that's the advantage of, of being with the great ones, I think. So he did it that way, but, but really through his example. Not through telling us that, but through, through being that. One of the things I love about you is that you have this great combination of pragmatism, as you mentioned, and the you know, cosmic appreciation of the love affair with life that's possible. And here you are, you're talking about what a teacher can bring, this possibility of transmission. But I imagine pragmatic listeners saying something like, I'd like to expose myself to the benefits of the kind of transmission that can come from working with a teacher, but I'm not willing to work with all of these imperfect human beings and all of their terrible psychological power issues, etc. So I think I might just skip it. And I know this is a question, a conundrum that you've studied a lot. How have you made peace with that? How can people get the benefits of transmission, but without having to be in relationship to this psychologically confused person and all of the sort of terrible exchanges that can come from that? great question so we're back to the 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 issue of discernment right and and earlier we're talking about it as a shield because there's there's a lot in between there's a lot in between you know these terrible psychologically messed up teachers and someone like Yogi Ramsar Kumar and and I think maybe even majority small majority of teachers are, are on the spectrum in between. There's really good teachers. And, and the way that we arm ourselves or protect ourselves is through the cultivation of discernment. And, and part of discernment is going to be study. You know, it's, 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 it's reading and learning about what we're looking for and what to watch out for on a spiritual level. I think another huge area of discernment for any of us in the Western world is, is the psychological. And, and I believe that, that we're, we need a deep psychological education, and not by going to grad school and studying counseling, but, but through, through really investigating our own psychological process in depth. And that's, that's going to be really important because let's say we come to... We, we find ourselves in front of a, a teacher with great with charisma and power and some radiance, and we're impacted by it. What we need to know about ourselves in, in those moments is, is how our psychological makeup is likely to relate to that person, not generally, but specifically. You know, how we tend to idealize what we do in relationship to power, what we do when that person's man or a woman, if they're a lot older or a little bit older, we, we need to know how to look at our, not only look at ourselves in that way, but also look at the teacher in that way. And most of that stuff is unconscious. So a lot of, a lot of the attention in this particular book is, is devoted to psychology and, and, and its importance to bear on the spiritual path for Western practitioners. And that's something that I'm becoming more and more passionate about as the years go by. 
not as an end point, but as as uh, a necessary and indisposable tool and part of the path, especially if we're going to be working with the bigger fires, like spiritual teachers and communities. And I'm all for it that to avail ourselves to that, because there are certain things that are available that aren't available else, elsewhere. But the, the best, right, the best protection is, is our own self-awareness and our own discernment. And I just don't, I want to underscore, like, the quality of, of self-honesty and continued self-investigation that's required in that. And then, and then we can kind of start to separate what, what's, what's the cultic dynamic in the community, you know, what might be the weak parts of the teacher, what might be the weak parts of us. And then from there, how are we going to still benefit from it? I mean, these are the delicate questions, and I think they're the questions of our times, too. Like, I think that they're, they've probably always been questions, but they're questions that are really relevant right now. I hear them a lot from clients. I get the therapy clients that have been burned by, by spiritual teachers or really struggling with the path or, or been on the path for 30 or 40 years and not satisfied. Those are people who I work with a lot. And this question comes up over and over again because, because we have to open our hearts and we have to, we have to give our trust, you know, at least to a certain degree to really receive the benefit. And we want to do that wisely. So that's, that's like a living, a living question of, of discernment or whatever we decide to call it. I wonder if you can share a little bit from your own experience. I know you've been in relationship with a spiritual teacher, working with a spiritual teacher, Lee Lozowick, and what you've learned about your own psychological makeup and how that has informed the relationship and sort of how you've grown in the relationship. So I met, I met and became a student of my teacher when I was 25. I had had a, a number of spiritual teachers before then, shorter term. And so I feel like I, I grew up on, on, on the particular path uh, offered by my teacher. So there's, I, I want to make a couple of distinctions because that's what I like to do. Uh, one is, is John Wellwood, who's who writes about these subjects as well. He makes a distinction between relative and absolute authority. And absolute authority is, is a spiritual teacher um, who, who has a, a greater degree of realization, who may be considered enlightened if, if enlightenment is used in that, in that particular tradition. And then relative authority is our, our teachers who, who are wise and know more than we do and guide us along the way. Um, what happens often in the guru-disciple construct, it's like a construct of a relationship, is that whether the teacher is an absolute authority or, or not, that's your, the construct works by relating to the teacher in that way, that this teacher is, is the transmitter of truth, and, and as a student, you... You, after, after surveying the situation as long as you need to, you, you avail yourself to that. You give your trust. And so, so the challenge is, is that when we do that, that, that we give our trust 
and we perceive the truth and it's laden with projections, even in the best of circumstances. So, so that, that was my experience, right? There's, there's perceiving something truly great and, 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 and tapping, tapping the great dharmic truths through my teacher. And then all the unconscious needs and desires for love and belonging and validation and being taken care of and having a great spiritual father who's trustworthy and and those all come together it's like the psychological the most neurotic and the most divine aspects of the relationship are braided together in these little strands so that you can't even take them apart and I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience but I see this generally you know, for, for a lot of people maybe a majority of people in some way to a greater or lesser extent. And, and, then, and then comes a certain point, and, and it's, it's said in a lot of texts that that's part of it, that that's part of that, that phase of the relationship that, that will inevitably be followed by a phase of, of disillusionment and having some of those illusions shattered. And, and then you have a process in any long-term student-teacher relationship of how do I want to say it, of, of the awakening of truth in your own experience. So, so I've been, it's been a 15-year relationship, and, and there's been merging. I, I like the metaphor of, of intimate relationships for this, because right when, when you meet somebody and you fall in love, there seems to be some combination of, of an essence attraction, something true and beautiful in you perceive something true and beautiful in that other person mm-hmm. and that you know that sparks this great love affair and often something neurotic and con- contracted in you also links up with that part in that person and that's my experience as a woman and as a therapist for couples and and there's the merging and then there's there's a process of disillusionment and and kind of separating out and individuating Ideally, in order to, to walk walk a path of life, you know, side by side as 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 mature adult companions, and and I think that's my experience to date in in, in a long term relationship with my teacher, of a childish you know a divine insight and a childish merging and a childish disillusionment because it was my projections and, and my disillusionment. And and then the process, the last chapter in the book is Omani Padme grow up. And then a, a process of, of growing up as a as a woman and an adult on the path in relationship to my teacher and and it's been a very honest relationship and and with great respect to him because I all my questions and doubts and frustrations he would always make space for in the community and I'd write my angry letters and he would read them in community meetings and we'd discuss my points and always he'd print them in his magazine and so it's like that but it's still in process i want to ask you about this title of the last chapter of the book oh money pod may grow up that you mentioned this idea that becoming a spiritually mature person is part of the the goal of being a spiritual practitioner and what what is that what are the qualities do you think of a spiritually mature person 
someone who's grown up spiritually? I didn't write about the qualities in the book, so you're going to get them off the cuff for me. I like off the cuff. <laughs> when you think of spiritually mature people, what are their qualities? Um, they can both think for themselves, but also respect and defer to higher authorities, wiser people, both. A spiritually mature person is, is embodying or, or has integrated many of the ideals that, that they aspire to, so we would see that in their actions. If you, if you hang out with that person for a day and go shopping with them and run into a bunch of kids and traffic jam, not that they have to be impeccable, but, but it would be demonstrated in, in the actions of their lives. I think a spiritually mature person would have a certain degree of, of time and attention dedicated to other, whether it's whatever their service is, whether it's their, their job or, or some project or mothering, but, but really have enough space in themselves that it's really available to, to the the question of how, how can I be useful? How can I serve effectively? Um, I think a spiritually mature person would definitely not be like righteous about their spirituality. Would be able to talk about other things. Ideally laugh. I suppose you don't have to have a sense of humor to be spiritually mature, but at least relaxed about it. That, that a spiritually mature person doesn't need to wear their spirituality as a badge and um, it's, it's simple phrases, but somebody who walks their talk mm-hmm. and who has a certain degree of refinement because there's a lot of good people and they're not necessarily integrated, spiritually developed human beings. They're just great people, good people, and often better <laughs> than, than a lot of righteous people in the path. But a but, um, certain degree of of refinement and grace and I think that somebody who keeps growing who just knows that they're going to keep growing and, and is, is dedicated to to a path of practice with, without needing to without needing to arrive at, at, at an imagined goal that they practice because, because it's, it's a good way to live I hope to become one of those people Wonderful. I I just have one final question for you. Something I've admired about all of your books, including Eyes Wide Open, the new book from Sounds True, but Halfway Up the Mountain and Do You Need a Guru, is that you have this gift for asking the right question. And I mean by the right question, you're asking the kind of question I'm interested in. You're asking the same kind of questions I'm interested in. Just kidding. Uh, So I'm curious, what is the main question or questions that you're asking right now? I'm going to think about that for just a moment so I can... I, I have a, a burning question about integration. And although I write a lot about embodiment and integration in the book, I really want to know more and more about how that happens in, in my body and in my personhood. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced 
that, that it is possible to penetrate the, the cells of the body with increasing awareness and, and that the psyche and, and the spiritual awareness can come together at levels of increasing refinement. And I want to know how it's done for me, how it's done most effectively, and, and necessarily how, how I can share that with other people. Um, that's one of the questions. And, and I want to know how I and somebody else can be like most genuine and authentic as a human being and r real and realistic with our capacities without sacrificing our greatest spiritual possibilities, without, without losing the, that spark of vast possibility. And, and then I want to know how, how to be most effective, most effective in life. Um, yeah, and I would like to do all of that while enjoying myself. And that's something that wasn't valued so much in the earlier years of the path. I certainly wish that for you, Mariana. <laughs> A lot of enjoyment. I wish I could ask you all of these questions because I'd be really interested in your responses. Well, you and I will keep talking. And uh, in the meantime, I want to thank you for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Mariana Kaplan, the author of a new book from Sounds True, Eyes Wide Open, Cultivating Discernment on the Spiritual Path, with a wonderful foreword by John Wellwood, psychologist John Wellwood, available at SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. Thank you for listening.